0: Hey everybody, this is Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Do you want me to test it again? Yeah. Test, test,
1: one, two, three, test, test. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, That's
0: good. Okay. A few months ago, we went down to Manhattan to visit our good friend, Dr. Kyle Kovacs, our former chief resident at Yale University and now current senior vitreoretinal surgery fellow at Cornell's Department of Ophthalmology. We went down to visit him to help continue our buddy call series this week with the retina on call. Our buddy, Kyle Kovacs, will help guide us and new trainees on how to handle the retina exam and retina emergencies that they'll see on call. We hope there's enough tips and tricks here to help trainees of all levels. Thanks again, Kyle, for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, guys. These podcasts are really wonderful and I'm honored to be here.
2: Well, it's always good to reunite with old friends and uh, see how well you're doing here at
0: Cornell. Uh, You know, a general disclaimer that all the advice that we're giving in these more clinically oriented episodes are the practice patterns that are observed at our institutions. You know, if you have your own practice pattern at your institution, then follow that over anything that we say.
2: And Ben and I both remember when we were junior residents, Kyle here actually teaching us a lot of... What we know and what we came to use a lot, so we just thought it appropriate to come bug you one more time yeah, in your you, new home turf. <laughs> you can't,
0: you can't get rid of us. <laughs>
1: we're always calling you in the middle of the night. So, we're, what what did you want to start off with, Kyle? So, there's a couple of just general tips when you're approaching patients in the emergency room that may have a retinal problem. And so, before we get into the specifics of diagnosis, I always think it's really important, especially as junior residents, not to get bogged down in the specifics of looking for a single problem. There are just a lot of diagnoses that there are subtle clues in many elements of the eye examination that may help to clue you in when you're not sort of fully a fully functional ophthalmologist yet. And so some of those can really help kind of lead you to the appropriate diagnosis, even if your, say, scleral depressed exam is not 100% yet. So, you know, fields, Asymmetry in the intraocular pressure, the presence of an APD, pupils, even doing re- uh, retroillumination of the iris to see if there's TIDs, for example, to so look for pigment dispersion, which, you know, your flag should be going up for retinal tears in those patients. Those are all really important parts of construing what you're worried about.
0: What tips do you have about getting a better retina exam as time goes
1: on? The acquisition of a really good retinal exam is a lifelong process. I, like, I as a fellow now, I thought I had a really good exam when I started fellowship, and then you start to see more the better your exam gets and realize you really didn't have a good exam when you thought you had a good exam. And so it takes time to really develop confidence in your exam that you actually see, say, aura 360 degrees as we really like to write in our notes. And so the first key is to not just practice doing this on that emergency room patient at midnight for your first time doing a scleral depressed exam. You need to try doing this on patients who may be able to tolerate it in the clinic and to sort of practice doing it even on just a routine PVD that you may see in an attending clinic or in your own in the VA or whatever clinic you may be in. It's hard to do when you only to do well when you only do it, say once a week in the emergency room. The other thing is that scleral depress exam is kind of our gold standard, but there are a lot of other ways to try to get a view of the back of the eye. So one of them is the three mirror lens. You know, it's a lot of residents are more comfortable with a lens held up to the eye, say as you would for a laser or gonio than they are with scleral depression, which is kind of a different bimanual technique that we're not really adjusted to doing. So using a three mirror is a really good way to get a look at the peripheral retina And again, that takes practice to get comfortable with that. And sometimes your senior resident or retina fellow may get angry with you for putting a three mirror on because it can gunk up the eye with gel. But you have to get a look at the retina before you call those people. So you have to do whatever you need to do. Um, and then the finally is being very comfortable with B scans. A really good B scan can pick up subtle tears if it's truly an ophthalmic B scan, not you know an ED ultrasound that's used for looking at veins typically. But a really good ultrasound skill can really service you well and you can pick up tears or subtle fluid uh, in ways that may surprise you. Yeah, you know, um, thanks for bringing that up, Kyle. Do you have any tips on how to do a B-scan? The, the best way of doing B-scans is to be systematic about it so that you do it the same way every time. So I do the same, effectively, six images when I'm scanning the retina. So I do a tip up over the optic nerve, and then I go tip nasal so that you, that's bisecting the optic nerve so you capture the macula. And those are your two kind of posterior pole images. And then I do one image for each of the quadrants. So for me, I happen to go have the patient look down, keep the tip nasal, and you can kind of scan that area when you're looking and then repeat that by convention, keeping the tip up when you're looking temporal and nasal in the eyes. But the whole idea is to really keep the probe flush with the eye, use a lot of gel and sweep with it Sometimes you have to have the patient open their eyes to get a high-quality image. So don't be afraid of doing that as well. Um, If that's the only way you're going to get a look, say if it's a patient with a vitreous hemorrhage, you have to do what you have to do to make sure you get a high-quality image.
2: Maybe even taking a step back, all these med students who are shadowing us now in our clinics... Before they've even really started doing a lot of indirect ophthalmoscopy, they're wondering which lenses they should even start out with. And there's so many. I remember when I started, I just got a basic 20 and 90 and crossed my fingers, hope for the best. But what advice might you give like a medical student trying to figure all
1: their equipment issues out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like every year I want to buy myself a new lens, so that probably tells you that there's no good single answer to these um, to that question. I did the same as you; I bought a 20 and a 90 diopter lens uh, to start residency, and I really feel like you can't go wrong with those things. They're really good learning tools, and they're kind of the gold standard references. And then, you know, we we fortunately have a an academic stipend that to use every year, which I applied to a couple of retina specific lenses later on in, in residency. And so I love the 28 diopter lens. I actually use that for almost all of my examinations now, but my co-fellow uses a uh, pan retina 2.2 and he can't live without that lens. So everybody develops their own sort of personal preference for these retinal examinations. And I don't think it really matters what lens you use so long as you've practiced with it and are comfortable with the view that it gives. But for young residents, I mean, a 20 and a 90 are, are really wonderful. I, you know, unless you have practiced with all of these different lenses, I wouldn't be chasing some other lens uh, because one of your senior residents or a fellow told you they love that lens.
0: Um, just for people who may not know, can you tell us what the advantages or disadvantages of a 28 and uh, Panorama 2.2 are? Great question.
2: The one two. is great. The other, is yeah, the other one sucks. <laughs> if, my <co-fellow, laughs>
1: if my co-fellow Luis is listening, well, the pan retina 2.2 is an awful lens. That's the difference. <laughs> um, the 28 gives a wider field of view. So there's less detail, but it gives a nice wide field of view, which for me when I'm scanning for peripheral retinal pathology uh, is very, very helpful. I can always switch substitute back in a 20 if there's something I want a little bit more detail for. But the 28 really helps me see everything in a gross view while I'm scanning around initially. Uh, the pan retina has a, also a, a wider field of view than a 20 diopter lens, but obviously not quite as big as a 28. With So obviously but there's more magnification in that lens as well.
0: So, you know, I remember when I was starting and I still feel this sometimes that when I'm trying to improve a certain skill with my retina exam that I feel bad making patients uncomfortable because of how bright the light is. What tips do you have about trying to manage that?
1: Yeah, it's really hard as a young resident when you're not sure where you're focusing and then it turns out you're focusing directly on the macula and you're bleaching the patient and they're trying to bells their eye away from you and it can be really challenging. So, I think of the fovea as kind of the game over switch. When your light beam hits there, the patient's going to have a really uncomfortable reaction. And usually there's a vocal complaint that follows that and a report that's sent to your senior resident. Uh, So, I mean... (laughs) So so it even starts at the slit lamp when you have a patient look at your ear, for example, rather than straight ahead while you're focusing. You're focusing over their blind spot, the optic nerve, so that then you can bring an in-focus beam across the fovea and subject them to the least amount of discomfort as possible. And the same thing is very true for the peripheral retina exam. You don't find your focus by staring at the macula and the optic nerve initially. I always start in the periphery. And so even for my routine exams, I, by convention, I do go the same way every time. I always have a patient start by looking up, and then I work around in a clockwise pattern in both eyes while I'm standing to the side so that I have organized in my mind how I'm looking at the retina, and I remember where things are that way. So I do the same pattern every single time. The last thing I look at is the optic nerve and the macula with my indirect, because once you do that to a patient, they will never forgive you, and you're not going to get a cooperative look again. The other problem that sometimes patients have is following those commands and looking in each direction. And so, I rarely only tell a patient, look up, look left. I usually give them a target on their body to look at because by proprioception, they'll still remember where that is rather than just where their eyes are looking. And so, you say, look at your ear, look down at your toes, look up at your hair. Don't do that to somebody who's bald. But that gives them some reference point to look at. Uh, And they're usually a little bit more cooperative. As a last-ditch resort, you can actually tell them to look at their hand, and you can move their hand to different places around the eye, and they'll track that infinitely better than they will just a command to look left or right. And just, again, because of the proprioception of knowing where their hand is in space, their eyes will still be able to track to it. Uh, And one final pearl, there are times in a retinal exam where you want to be gentle to a patient and do right by them. But there are times in a retinal exam when you really need to do right by the patient and do what's necessary to get a view. So be deliberate. Lay the patient all the way back. Don't shortchange yourself by trying to have them sit upright and crane your neck around and try to get a view. Get the patient all the way back and flat. You'd be amazed how much easier that makes your life trying to see the peripheral retina.
0: So, you know, I think now we can switch to talking about cases and talking about actual patient encounters and how you would advise us to manage them. You know, one of the most common complaints we get is, you know, a patient comes in with new flashes, new floaters. What kind of things do you want us to know before we call a retina fellow retina attending? you know, with the case?
1: So flashes and floaters, they're like our bread and butter. I joke with the patients that I see in our clinic that that's like 50% of our practice, right? New, new flashes and new floaters. We just spoke a lot about scleral depressed exam. But before you jump to that and think about, okay, I'm going to inspect the vitreous base and look for tears and things like that, there are other things that cause flashes and floaters that you need to be aware of uh, before you immediately think PBD or you know, vitreo-retinal interface problems. And there are some things that you have to worry about, too. So we had a neuro-ophthalmology attending who used to talk with us about photopsias, right? So a lot of things can show up as flashing lights. It can be dry eye, but that's never your, you know, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. There's, of course, vitreo interface problems like we just talked about. So mechanically stimulating the retina by the vitreous gel tugging on it. Um, but also the outer retina inflammation or vascular perfusion events can lead to photopsias as well. So there are other things to think about when patients are seeing flashing lights. And of course, there's also migraine, uh, which, uh, as as you guys, I'm sure, have been embedded, we never refer to as ocular migraines, rather an acephalic migraine with aura at at our institution. Uh, But those are also really important things to keep in mind when you're evaluating a patient for flashes and floaters. And most of that comes from the history. Right? So after you've got your dilating drops in or while you're taking your quick one or two-minute history, before you put the dilating drops in, you need to hear how long were the flashes present for, what did they look like, were they happening when the eye was closed, uh, were they in both eyes. If you have a perceptive patient, did you have headache, any other associated symptoms? That's the really important thing to rule out some of these other entities, at least in the emergency room. So now you've decided that this sounds like it's vitreoretinal retinal interface. Let's say it's flashes, it looks like a firework going off, only in the one eye. They've got new floating spots in their vision, like somebody turned a snow globe upside down, and you're worried about something inside the eye. It sounds like it could be a tear, and you need to really inspect the retina. So in my mind, you know, in ocular melanoma there's a risk stratification criteria right but there's a very helpful mnemonic to remember that you score points for different elements and i think about uh PBDs actually the same way that there's certain points that make me more worried for some patients compared to others so did they have a tear or a retinal detachment in the other eye right that's indicative of pathologic vitreoretinal retinal interface problems, they're probably going to have it in this eye as well. Did they really see flashing lights, or are they just talking about what sounds like a PVD, right? So flashes are indicative of traction. Do they see lots of floaters, like a snow globe, that suggests vitreous hemorrhage? Or did they just see, you know, a spider web out temporally, which sounds like the Weiss ring? Uh, and then when you do your exam... Is there a Schaefer sign, you know, that little reflective stuff in the anterior vitreous that's really hard to see for people to focus on a lot of the times as a junior resident? Is there blood in the eye? So these are the things that kind of make your ears prick up a little bit uh, and make you take the attitude of, I have to find the tear, not let me see if there's a tear or not.
0: And just for people who haven't heard it before, what's a Weiss ring, Kyle?
1: So a Weiss ring is the uh, the posterior condensation of the vitreous body where it used to be attached at the optic nerve. And it's attached in a circle around the optic nerve. So when it pops off during a posterior vitreous attachment, it has sort of a characteristic ring or annular appearance that you can see kind of free-floating in the uh, vitreous cavity. Because it came off the optic nerve, it typically kind of manifests as a little floating thing temporally in a patient's vision. You'll actually almost often see a patient kind of swipe out to the side, like they're trying to hit a fly over there when they're describing this entity that's new. All right, so a patient came in with a, a posterior vitreous attachment. You've seen a Weiss ring. You're now inspecting the peripheral vitreous and retina to see if there's a tear, or even worse, a retinal detachment. You do all the things we just talked about, lying the patient back, and you start doing your inspection, and oh my goodness, you did a great exam. You looked all the way around, and you didn't see a tear, but you saw some blood. So that's also pretty scary, because that means that the vitreous was really tugging on the retina enough to cause a bit of bleed. It doesn't, there's nothing that you would necessarily treat at this time, but that's a patient who, depending on your institution, probably needs to be seen with close follow-up. So, whether that's the next couple of days in your resident clinic or however you work out your follow-ups, that's a patient that you need to see more closely. And similarly, if there's blood in the vitreous, uh, that they have a vitreous hemorrhage, and even if you didn't see a tear, they need close follow-up.
0: Yeah, I remember, Kyle, like one of the first things you taught me is if you see, you know, vitreous hemorrhage or retinal hemorrhage, to act as if they do have a retinal tear. And then just because you didn't find it doesn't mean they don't have it. So I think that that really stuck
1: with me. Yeah, depending on the study, it's 50 to 70% plus that there's actually a tear. And so my attitude is always find it. So let's say instead of just some blood, you found a tear, in the retina. Now, that obviously needs to be treated uh, with a laser to prevent retinal detachment. Um, How and when you may do that may depend a little bit on your institution, whether you do it as the junior resident, you get your senior involved, if the fellow needs to be called, we leave that a little bit up to your institution, but recognition and then escalating that to the appropriate treatment is really key. Kyle, when when
2: we were juniors trying to tell you, like, I think I see a retinal detachment here, what are some things you can go back and retroactively tell me this now, but what are some things you wish you'd heard me tell you in addition to that? Or how would you have preferred that we even approached someone with an obvious retinal detachment? It's not just enough to say it's
1: an RD takeover senior, right? So, the first thing is making sure that it's truly a regmatogenous retinal detachment uh, rather than, say, a tractional or an exudative retinal detachment. And that will... One, look differently than the other. It'll flap in the wind, kind of like a billowing sail when you look at it. And probably most importantly, you you have to find a retinal break over it. You should be able to see where there's a tear in the retina. If you're not confident in your your exam, you can use uh, an ultrasound to see how the retina moves and how it looks. If it's dome-shaped, it may be serious. If it kind of flows freely, it's probably a regmatogenous detachment. So once you've convinced yourself, I see the break. I see the retinal detachment. I need to call my seniors about this. The questions that you're alluding to are, well, what are we thinking about for possible interventions for this? So what's the vision? Is the macula on or off is kind of always the starting point. Do we need to take this within the next 24 hours or is this something that can wait a couple of days to go to the operating room? The other important things from a fellow's perspective that are very nice to know at least are, is the patient phagic? Have they had cataract surgery before? Is there a a posterior vitreous detachment or not? Where is the retinal detachment and where is the break in the retina? Are there multiple breaks in the retina? Is there lattice degeneration or other signs of thinning or holes elsewhere in the retina? Yeah, because the location of the tear or the detachment could maybe lead you to getting away with doing just a pneumatic for the time being as opposed to taking them straight to the OR, right? Exactly. It dictates kind of you know what your treatment options might be and then you know even if you're going to go to the operating room, what kind of surgeries you would think about doing. And again, a lot of this depends on practice patterns at your respective institutions, but those are some of the important things that it's very nice to hear uh, as a fellow that help you sort of f- formulate a plan. Okay, so as a overview of someone's chief complaint
2: and how to approach a chief complaint of flashes and floaters I think that's great thank you so much Kyle maybe uh, for a second case a different chief complaint we might hear say for instance there's a 67 year old man who's calling the line with a painful right red eye that recently had an injection for macular degeneration how would you how would You'd like a junior resident to approach something like
1: that out the gate. So, this is obviously a really common question, especially on the same day after an injection from Betadine. But you kind of already hit the most important feature, which is Has this patient with a red eye had surgery or an intraocular procedure performed recently? And if the answer is yes, that patient has to be seen and they have to be seen immediately, even if that means coming to the emergency room that night. You know, red eyes, painful eyes, dropping vision, new floaters uh, in patients that had surgery uh, or an injection recently are always really concerning for a post-procedural infection. And that has to be, you know, thing one, two, and three that you rule out in these patients before you tell them it's probably fine, just use artificial tears. Especially, I guess,
2: one of the most... Foundational pillars of physician ethics, especially as a surgeon, if you intervene on an eye, you can consider that eye like your own eye. Any problems that come up with it, they are yours to deal with and address
1: to that patient's, in that patient's best interest. That's a really good point. Um, obviously, this always varies by institution, but I know most surgeons want to know that you're seeing their patients that that may not necessarily be a phone call if it's one in the morning but they want to know if you saw one of their post-operative patients in the emergency room or in the clinic after hours so for
2: someone who say had an injection two day two days ago of some anti-vegf and they're having these complaints or these problems What are some things that a junior should be able to, like, be able to tell you or look out for that might distinguish how they'd approach something like in our first case?
1: So, you know, you're looking at the, did the, after you put dilating drops in, did the sclera blanch or not? Is there perilimbal injection, which is really suggestive of intraocular inflammation? Is there light sensitivity when you were shining a light to check their pupils? Is there kind of increasing cell or fibrin in the anterior chamber of the eye and possibly even a hypopion if you're looking for a really easy part of the diagnosis that'll give it away Um, but then also pushing through to look at the anterior vitreous to see if there's vitritis or vitreous cell and is there a hazy view to the back part of the eye that's all very very concerning sometimes you may need to convince yourself if the cornea is not looking good with a b-scan to actually look at the vitreous i have seen residents be fooled by only looking at a b-scan of one eye and seeing syneretic changes look like inflammation so it's always good to use the other as an in internal control if you have a doubt of the internal consistency of the vitreous you brought up one type of endophthalmitis, and it's it's pretty easy when the patient just had an injection three days ago or they're five days out from cataract surgery and things are getting worse. The trickier ones are sometimes patients who didn't have any recent surgical intervention who show up with a painful red eye and cell in the vitreous and fibrin on the in the AC, uh, and you don't really have a great view of the back of the eye. So there are those forms of endophthalmitis which are endogenous, usually hematogenous spread that are sometimes trickier to pick up, don't have as clear a history but also really need to be on your differential. These are often sicker patients. There's usually something wrong with them systemically. They usually look febrile. um, But it really needs to be on the differential for any patient that comes in with kind of unexplained vitreous cell and loss of vision, um, especially if you don't have a great view of the entire retina. Sometimes you get lucky and can actually see uh, a lesion in the retina um, that is kind of spewing out vitreous debris, but these patients all need to have blood cultures they need to kind of have a systemic antibiotics started and you need to look for sources of them so once you've got once you're entertaining endophthalmitis whether endogenous or exogenous on your differential this obviously gets escalated to your institution's appropriate Personnel, senior residents, fellows, attendings, depending on where you are, because um, this is one of those few sight-threatening things that can really progress in the matter of hours, and this is the one that you call people for in the middle of the night, no matter who they are. So, that's a really great comprehensive approach. Thanks, Dr. Kovacs. What
2: would you would your approach or thinking be any different if the patient were, say, immunosuppressed?
1: So if you're seeing vitreous cell, or loss of vision, or lots of new floaters, maybe a red eye, and it's an immunosuppressed patient, there's a number of other things that kind of jump higher other than just say bacterial endophthalmitis, although that would certainly still be on it. Uh, fungal endophthalmitis would also be a possible etiology. But there is also the other thing that really scares retina specialists, which is white retinas, or ARN, horn, CMV retinitis, although that's slower. But viral retinitis, so retinal necrosis in the setting of a viral infection is one of those few things that can really blossom in the span of a number of hours. Uh, If you have acute retinal necrosis and say follow up in clinic in a couple of days, the retina will be entirely white and that will be a lost eye for the patient. So that's also really important to keep on your differential. White retinas are scary in the periphery and so those need to be called.
2: I also feel like Especially when I was more of a junior resident, just trying to get, develop like an appreciation for all the different ways retinal vasculitis couldn't show up on my exam. I just kept seeing all these pictures thinking like, well, that's great when it's florid and obvious vasculitis, but what if it's a little more subtle? Will I be able to pick it up? And
1: the first thing is that if it's a subtle peripheral vasculitis, the answer is, it probably is okay to not finish the evaluation in the emergency room. This is not probably quite as vision-threatening a problem. So if you're having a question whether maybe there's a couple of hemorrhages out in the periphery, maybe I see a sheathing over here, right, This that's not the same as a diffusely white retina. So there are some workups that need to be done, and you can start them certainly in the emergency room, but that's not the kind of, vis- of problem that's going to threatens a, a patient's vision in the span of a couple of hours.
0: So that I think that was a great overview of a, of a red, painful eye that has vision loss. What about a, an eye that has painless, acute vision loss? What kind of things should we look for or think about there?
1: So you know, painless vision loss, we're thinking back of the eye, retina, optic nerve, sometimes back in the brain, but really we're talking to a retina specialist. So what retinal things are we worried about? We already hit on one of them, retinal detachments for acute painless vision loss. But the thing that I think you're getting at is uh, acute retinal vascular occlusions and specifically arterial occlusions. So, those are patients that when you're doing your afferent function check, checking vision, checking confrontation fields, checking color plates, checking APD, those is how you're going to get clued into this as your diagnosis. So, there should be an APD if it's really a central retinal artery occlusion. They should have a field defect or be describing an area of a scotoma when they're telling you where their vision's lost if it's a branch retinal artery occlusion. Um, but you pick up a lot of this on your eight. A- test of the afferent visual function. It can be very challenging to pick up on an examination if it's just a fresh arterial occlusion that's happened in the past couple of hours. It's very subtle sometimes to see the vascular attenuation that happens in one eye, and you may need to flip back and forth between the other eye to see if there's a difference in the caliber of the retinal arteries. Um, You may see the term boxcarring applied, which is these little... Um, like train cars on a tram track appearance to the blood vessels as they come from the optic nerve that's a really subtle feature that can be very hard to see on an emergency room slit lamp so the story tells you an awful lot and then you try to find the exam features that fit with that it's rare to see a cherry red spot macula in the span of a couple of hours if the patient really came into the emergency room acutely And why do they get a cherry red spot? Uh, So a cherry red spot happens when the retina develops edema. Uh, And so specifically, it's the inner retina that's affected by the um, retinal vasculature. And so as the time since the occlusion grows... The ischemic event kind of becomes more pronounced in the inner retina. Uh, the term that describes this is actually called oncosis, but that's ischemic cell death. And so, as they start to have episodes of oncosis, and the ischemia starts to have an effect on the inner retina, uh, that's how this uh, edema and white retina starts to become manifest. So, if you've if you're thinking your patient has like a
2: central retinal artery occlusion. We know there's not really too much you can do for them, at least for their eye. People talk about digital massage and such, but really there's something else that you need to do for them. And I think um, you probably know what I'm
1: already getting at, what was drilled into us in our residency together. We're really talking about preventing problems in the brain or in the fellow eye in some rare circumstances by uncovering the etiology for this and is our neuro overlord would say at Yale, the eye is the first branch off the highway that leads to the brain and so when we're talking to patients this is a stroke of the eye which they happen to be here rather than in their brain. The workup for this starts with your exam so you're going to look for an embolus inside the eye because if you find an embolus that makes your job a lot easier. If you don't see an embolus, then you have to keep digging, why did this patient have a central retina or artery occlusion? In somebody who's frail, older, um, you have to keep uh, GCA on your differential, and you need to order inflammatory markers in their blood, and then however else your institution wants to deal with its GCA workup. The other thing, though, is that all of these patients need to have a stroke workup, and that includes carotid imaging, an echo, and most importantly, an MRI of the brain to look for other embolic events. Um, If you find another embolic event in the brain, that's unfortunate, but it also will take GCA off your differential. This is a firm academy guideline that we have to have stroke workups for these patients. So even if you're not seeing this patient in the emergency room and they come into your clinic with with a new onset acute painless vision loss and you diagnose them with an arterial occlusion, they have to be sent to a stroke center to have the workup one last plug we're not quite done with the eye when this happens because even if we can't salvage the vision these patients are at risk for neovascular glaucoma down the road and they need to be followed to make sure that they don't develop any further problems that take away what little vision they do have left after these occlusions
2: so we've talked a lot about these three main chief complaints these are a lot of the emergency and these are a lot of the emergency cases that a first year opto resident would see probably the last one also, pretty high yield would be somebody comes in. They say I suddenly can't see anything out of this eye one more time, and you go in and you take a look, and it's all like you can't see much either. How would you triage that kind of thing? Yes,
1: yeah, so it sounds like you're describing a vitreous hemorrhage, which most of these patients usually say, "Maybe I saw a shadow, uh, a shower of spots, or a, sh- a curtain come down," but. You know, you can't really see a classic retinal detachment. There's something blocking your view. Um, so the management or follow-up for these patients is very different depending on what you think caused the bleeding. If this is a 55-year-old otherwise healthy guy or lady and doesn't have any sort of systemic diseases and they come in with blood in the eye, I mean, you have to do a B-scan of the back of the eye to make sure that you the retina is attached and that there's no retinal tear that you can see. But this patient needs to be followed really closely. Um, So the etiologies that we're worried about are, you know, retinal tears that bled or a really bloody vitreous attachment, although I've rarely seen that with this much blood that you can't see the retina. But these patients often have to go for surgery for for a non-clearing vitreous hemorrhage just to rule out the possibility of a retinal tear. Um, If, on the other hand, patients have maybe borderline non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy versus proliferative diabetic retinopathy in the other eye and haven't been seeing providers in some time and come in with a vitreous hemorrhage in one eye, you do your B scan, the retina is attached. You know, those patients are not quite the same degree of emergency that, um, say, the first patient was because you have a likely diagnosis. That said, diabetics can still have retinal tears and retinal detachments due to vitreous detachments. So they also need to be followed in a pretty timely fashion. You just may be able to get away with not taking them to the operating room quite as soon.
2: Well, thanks a lot, Kyle. There's also a bunch of other, you know, more exotic diagnoses that, you know, many books, as you pointed out earlier, I think off, off mic, many books... Volumes and volumes have been dedicated to every single possible retina differential diagnosis out there, but these are the main ones that they really, these diagnoses can be made in the emergency room. They're the ones that have to be made there. Everything else, the more exotic stuff, can be probably worked up further in clinic with more clinic imaging. Uh, So we'll leave it at that for now, and probably on to the most important question for Dr. Kyle Kovacs. For someone considering ophthalmology or potentially retina, what made you choose retina?
1: So there's a, a couple of different things that may sway you to the dark side or not. Um, I am a very, very visual thinker. I think most ophthalmologists are, um, but I really can't remember a sentence if it's written down in front of me, but I can remember whatever picture you put in front of me. And retina, the practice of retina is very, very image oriented. And that's both um, your examination, but also as you alluded to, we have all these wonderful gadgets and imaging tricks in clinic. And looking at them is really one of my favorite parts of the practice of retina, uh, doing visual an- analysis and pattern recognition. So that's kind of like the medical side of of retina that I really love. I love the imaging. I love pattern recognition. Um, but there's a the practice of retina is is very uh, visually oriented, and uh, that's a way that I uh, certainly think. When I was in high school, I I thought I was going to be an art history professor, and uh, retina or the analysis of images for retina is actually very similar to the way that you go through the motions of analyzing a painting. There are certain ways that you flow around looking at a painting in an art history class uh, and you're checking off different things much like you would a fluorescein or a fundus photo. I look at in a certain sequence so that you don't miss anything and I found that to be a very intuitive way with my mind of, of thinking about the eye. The other aspect is more uh, surgical and I Never like to have to sell somebody on a surgery. I really don't like sleeping at night knowing that I'm convincing people that they have to have a surgery that may not be medically indicated. Um, they may really want it or need it. It's just not my personality that I like. I like when surgeries are medically indicated. When I I say, "Well, we really only have one treatment for this. Your retina detached." It's unfortunately not going to fix with drops. We need to do a surgery, and it makes the decision making a little bit easier for me. And I kind of enjoy that aspect of the field that I don't have to to convince people that they have to have a surgery. Um, it's usually cut and dry, and more cut and dry in our field. The other surgical element I really enjoy is kind of you get to participate in a lot of different parts of the eye when you're a retinal surgeon. It's not just peeling stuff on the macula but you actually you put buckles on the outside part of the eye so you still do strabismus surgery kind of Um, you're doing anterior segment work we're putting lenses in scleral fixated lenses and and so it's it's kind of uh, fun to still retain all these different elements from your uh, residency training and have them kind of pay forward and still be able to utilize them
0: Kyle, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any last tips for residents who are about to start
1: residency or any other trainee? So that that was kind of a lot of pearls thrown in there. But if I think there's one kind of takeaway mantra for a young resident, even if it's not retina related, but you're seeing a patient in the emergency room, you're not entirely sure what's going on, but you should always have the attitude of doing your homework or and what I mean by that is doing your due diligence to really examine the patient every way possible to figure out what's going on, you always have support at written residency, whether it's your senior resident or a fellow, but it's always best to call them when you've done everything possible in your exam. So, you know, before calling them and saying, well, I've got a vitreous hemorrhage, I haven't done the B scan yet. Make sure you do the B-scan first so you've put yourself through the exercise of coming up with a final diagnosis before you call them. And that's not meant to make you not disturb your seniors, but it'll do you a service to have really pushed yourself to get to the diagnosis before you escalate to the next level. The last point I'd say is um, it's easy as a junior resident to hand some of these patients off to your senior or to your fellow, but it's really important to follow them, uh, whether that's physically going to the operating room with them, if you're able to, for the case, to see what happens when, say, an endophthalmitis goes to the operating room or a retinal detachment goes to the operating room, um, but then to also see what happens to them afterwards. That's how you really learn the whole spectrum so you can actually counsel these patients when you first see them in the emergency room the first time. All right. Thank you. Yep. Thanks you one more time, Kyle. Thank you, guys. It's such a pleasure to see you again. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.